Just to begin this morning, if you would take your Bibles and uh, open them back to the passage of Scripture that was read to you earlier during our Scripture reading time in Exodus chapter 6. Again, if you do not have a Bible with you, please feel free to take one from the pew rack in front of you. You're going to need that this morning because our study is going to be less of a sermon and, and really more of a Bible study. We're going to do a deep dive into what the Scripture teaches about the subject of communion or the Lord's Supper. And to understand that fully, we're going to take two weeks, two parts to this message. Uh, The first part will be this week where we talk about the biblical foundation, and then the next time we gather together to talk about this, it's going to be to describe the historical and theological significance of the Lord's Supper. But for today, I just want to go back and explain to you biblically where this comes from and hopefully answer some questions that might be on your mind. Perhaps you're visiting with us and you're um, a Christian and you attend a different church and you're wondering what it is about communion that would require anybody to have to teach on it. Uh, Maybe it's just very self-evident to you. But I think that what you'll find is that at this church, uh, it is a little bit different than what some people experience elsewhere. And and that is, it really is a celebration. Uh, It's a time where we sing with joy. It's a time where we come to the table with, with eager expectation to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. And if that's different than what you're used to experiencing, then I think this will be helpful for you. If you're visiting and you're not a Christian, then this is an opportunity for us to explain to you why we celebrate the Lord's table and what it means and what it means and can mean for you. And then finally, if you are somebody who attends a church that maybe takes this particular ceremony and refers to it as a mass, uh, we'll be able to explain to you why we don't call it that and what the difference is and why I think it's so important for you to understand. So with that sort of laying out our intention, let's go all the way back to the beginning. And we go back to the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is where I want to start today because it really highlights for us the whole purpose behind the Passover meal, which was the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples when he first instituted what we know of as the Lord's Supper or communion. Here in Exodus chapter 6, you'll notice that Yahweh gives promises to Moses We are moving out of the patriarchal period from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, um, and Levi, who eventually gave birth to Moses, and the people are now in bondage in Israel, and they are about to be released by the mighty hand of God, and he gives them this promise, and beginning in verse 6 of chapter 6, we read this, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out, and a bit later, I will deliver you from, and I will redeem you with, and verse 7, I will take you to be. Those are four promises given directly to the Jews. And the reason why I read them to you like that is because you have to put your emphasis here on what God will do. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from. I will redeem you with. And I will take you to be. These promises were the very bedrock of the testimony of the faithfulness of God to the Jewish people. And that is important for us to remember as Gentiles because true Israel, the Israel of God, was opened up to receive not just those who are of ethnic Jewish descent, but also all of those Gentiles who put their faith in God. The covenant given to the Jews was extended out to embrace all of those Gentiles who also put their faith in God. And the new covenant when it was instituted, was instituted specifically to be a covenant that would embrace people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, the reason that those four promises are important is because there were four representatives, four illustrations of that promise when the Passover meal was celebrated. 
So turn now in your Bibles over to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look specifically at chapter 14. Now, in each of the Gospels, and the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is an account of the Lord's Supper. So in Mark, it is chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. And I choose this particular reference just because it's the shortest one and it's the most concise. This is Mark's testimony of what happened in that upper room. Beginning in verse 22 of Mark 14, we read, And as they were eating, he took bread, being Jesus, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, just pause there for a moment. You'll notice that he took a cup. It doesn't say that he took the cup. The reason he took a cup is because there were multiple cups in front of him. During the time of the Passover meal, as it was set up, it would include four cups of wine. And each of those four cups of wine that were in front of you represented one of those four promises that we've just discussed back in Exodus. And so it's very carefully orchestrated and instructive the way that the Lord chooses the cup. He drinks the first cup of wine. He drinks the second cup of wine. But the third cup of wine he takes and he says this, after giving thanks, he gave it to them. He gave the cup of wine to them. In the account that Luke gives, he tells them to divide it among themselves. And this cup was obviously large enough that it could be split among the disciples who were there and they poured some into perhaps one of their empty glasses, or some people think they simply drank off the common vessel as it went around. But either way, the implication is clear that Jesus is saying that this third cup is to be shared among you. Judas, by this point, had been dismissed. Judas was off betraying Jesus, but the remaining disciples were there. And each one of them took some of that cup. It was given to them, and they all drank of it. Now, it's important because Jesus is saying that this cup is now being transformed. This cup is being transformed. They were used to having the Passover meal. In fact, um, earlier they had been instructed to go and to prepare the meal the way that you normally would. The Jews every year were instructed, were required to gather together to celebrate Passover. But there was something distinctly unusual about this Passover from every indication. For example, there was no lamb. I mean, the lamb was the centerpiece of the Passover meal, but there was no lamb because the fulfillment of that lamb was sitting in their midst. Jesus was the lamb. Jesus was the lamb who was to be slain. But that wasn't the only difference. We also notice here that there was a change to what they were accustomed to hearing. And when it came to the third cup of wine, when the person who was in charge of the service would usually remind the people that one day God was going to redeem them, Jesus takes the cup of wine and says, this is now being fulfilled. You are being redeemed. And I'm redeeming you. In fact, if you recall what that particular statement was, it is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. What the people witnessed in Egypt when the Lord came and wiped out all of their gods by bringing plagues that specifically demonstrated the impotence of their gods, and when he took them out of the land of Egypt, having killed off the firstborn of everybody who did not put the blood on the doorpost. And as he brings them through the Red Sea and then allows it to crash down on top of Pharaoh's army, wiping him out militarily and culturally and financially and spiritually and almost totally. 
It is with those mighty acts of judgment that he, he destroys those who oppress his people. And Jesus says now, in one man, in one cup, the redemption has come. Not just over a foreign nation who has oppressed you, but over sin and death and hell that has oppressed every single human being since the fall. And that is why Jesus can then declare to them in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is the blood of the covenant. This is the once and for all sacrifice. This is why we do not believe that this is a sacrifice. This is what makes it different than a mass where people are instructed to come to receive forgiveness over and over again as Christ is made present over and over again, crucified over and over again. Friends, that is not what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is the celebration that He did that once and for all and will never do it again. The cross is empty. The Lord is resurrected and ascended and sits on the throne of God, reigning and ruling from glory. He is not brought down into the host again because of a Latin phrase dictated by a priest. And so when we see that this was a covenant being instituted, it was a promise from God that in his blood, his death alone would come the ultimate fulfillment of all of those promises. And he says it's poured out for many. It's not poured out for all. Every single person is not going to be redeemed. Christ came for his sheep. He came for his own. He died for those whom the Father had ordained to give him before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus explains this to his disciples. And he says, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The fruit of the vine is wine. And having just consumed the first two cups and having passed around the third cup, he says, I will not drink again until we do so together in the kingdom. He leaves that fourth cup of wine that was in front of him as it is. I believe he didn't drink it that night. I believe that it remains there as a testimony to the fact that when he returns, he will drink in the future. He will raise his glass in a future day. He will celebrate with his children around the table and they will eat and they will drink and they will feast and they will rejoice. Not in the one who comes in humility to be crucified, but in the one who comes in glory. You see, the moment that we await is his return, his return to glory, his return to reign and to rule, his, his return to put right everything that is wrong, to overturn and reverse the curse. Regardless of how you understand the specifics of the fulfillment of the meaning of the kingdom, everybody from every strand and channel theologically converge again in this one universally believed reality, and that is that when He returns to establish the new heavens and the new earth, this will be His kingdom come. And everything that is done in heaven will be done on earth. You see, patriotism is at best a civil virtue and subjective at that, but it is not a Christian virtue. The only kingdom to which Christians pledge allegiance is the kingdom of God and of Christ, and He comes to establish that. The kingdom of which we are true citizens, real citizens. And so when we celebrate this Lord's Supper, it is meant to be done in such a way that we do it to remember what He has done, what He is doing in His intercession for us, and to celebrate and look forward to His coming, His return. 
It is not just a memorial looking back. It is a celebration looking forward. It is a reminder of the promise of everything that he said that he will do for us. Now, the text that is most often misunderstood with respect to this particular celebration is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and so I want to take a few moments to unpack that for you. So take your Bibles now with that as sort of an introduction, and let's open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a challenging chapter for many reasons. It is, in my humble opinion, one of the most poorly translated and taught passages perhaps in much of the New Testament. And what I'm going to endeavor to do this morning is I'm just going to focus in on the last half of it as it relates to the Lord's Supper and bring some clarity. What I'd like to bring clarity to in in particular is given to us in the Junctions that are a little bit further on. Look at verse 27. We'll, we'll cover a larger section, but just so you've got some context. Uh, verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But what does it mean to examine yourself, and why are the Corinthian believers called to examine themselves? Well, let's take a look at what the text says. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 11. We're going to begin there. Paul is, is writing this letter to the Corinthian believers, a series of churches, uh, house churches that would meet in Corinth and in the areas around Corinth, very cosmopolitan town, one that would have had people from all over the world, often meeting there. If they were Christians, they would have gathered with other Christians. There were often messengers that came delivering letters and receiving letters. We know that because Chloe's people had already informed Paul of what was going on in Corinth, and it wasn't necessarily good news. In this chapter, we hear about messengers that were going to be there, and so the church had to conduct themselves carefully so as not to unnecessarily offend or confuse. But we get here, and, and there's something internal. There's an internal problem within the church, and it gets unpacked for us beginning in verse 17. And Paul says to them, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Not only do I not commend you, but I need to correct you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Please notice the phrase, when you come together. It is common throughout this section. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together. You'll read that over and over again. It's talking about the gathering of the church. You see, the church originally, around the time of Pentecost, when it was founded, would gather every day. They had just experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They were amazed at what they were hearing as they had been gathered there in Jerusalem for the Passover, and yet people were preaching the gospel in a language that they understood, but they knew that person had never studied the gift of tongues that was called. And they were able to hear the gospel preached, and, and they all gathered together every single day, coming to share a meal together to celebrate what God has done in Christ. And uh, for those who were out of town and they couldn't provide for themselves for an extended period of time, the people that were there would sell what they had and provide for them so that lodging and food could be made available. And it was a daily celebration. It wasn't too long after that that the church began instead to gather together on what's called the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is Sunday, our Sunday. They call it the Lord's Day because that's the day that he rose from the dead. And it was very common for the people every Lord's Day to gather and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was part of a bigger meal. It was part of what was called the love feast. The love feast was a common meal, very similar to what we're going to enjoy in a few moments out there on the quad, where food is provided for everybody. And the way it was done back then was that people would bring food and they would bring wine and they would uh, bring it all and they would set it out and people would come and they would enjoy that meal together. 
And the way that it worked is that the uh, richer people would bring more and the poorer people would bring less or nothing at all. There is nothing unbiblical about wealthy people providing more than poor people. It is not a biblical concept that everybody ought to pay the same amount. Out of the abundance that the rich had, they provided more than the poor. And that was one of the ways that God designed the local church to care for those who didn't have enough. And so what happened is, in Corinth, the rich people would bring a lot of food and a lot of wine. The problem is, when you're rich, you're generally in charge of your own schedule. Almost everybody else in those days was responsible to somebody else. And the work day was 12 hours. It was usually from sunrise until sunset. And it was six days a week. And Sunday was not your day off. Sunday was the first day of the week. And so if these people, especially the slaves, the ones who were owned by somebody else, paying off a debt that they were responsible for paying, then they would not be able to arrive at that gathering until after sundown. And, and tragically, what had happened was that this large communal meal that was meant to be a celebration had become defiled by people who had arrived early and begun eating all of the food and drinking all of the wine. And by the time the poor people arrived, there was nothing left. And so Paul condemns them for this. He says this is an atrocious, grievous, wicked demonstration of selfishness. And he's very, very hard on them. And so he says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see, there was some healthy division and healthy contention and healthy tension within the church in Corinth. You see, tension and division in the church is not necessarily a bad thing. Ungodly divisiveness is condemned, but disagreement sometimes reveals, as we see here, that somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And in this case, the division between the rich and the poor, the clamoring for justice and equity, the issues that had no doubt been brought to Paul because of Chloe's people, as we see at the beginning of the book, one of them is this issue of how they are treating the love feast. It has become this, this debauched, drunken party for the people who could be there early, and it had become a humiliation for those who arrived late. And so verse 20 says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Evidently, as part of this celebration, somebody would at some point remind everybody of the work of the Lord, and they would take some bread, and they would say, let's do this together in remembrance of Him, and they would take some wine and say, let's do this together in remembrance of Him. The love feast and the Lord's Supper were intertwined. The next time we gather to talk about this, I'll give you some of the historical evolution of this celebration and how it used to be combined, and then it became separated. But for the context, let's just focus here in Corinth. It is together. It's one event. And he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What, what you're doing does not honor Christ. What you're doing doesn't please Him. It doesn't honor Him. It doesn't remember Him. It doesn't accomplish the purpose for which He gave you this beautiful ordinance. Verse 21 says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Somebody arrives with nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And so they just sit there looking at the others who have already eaten all the food, drank all the wine, and are now sitting there in resplendent, indulgent luxury while they are left with nothing. You see, we call it communion. It comes from a Latin word or a Greek word which means to be together, to come together. 
The Latin word sounds like the English word for communion. The Greek word is koinonia, fellowship. This is meant to be a fellowship meal. It's meant to be a love, an agape feast. And it's turned into something that is just a a divisive event where a certain group is treated one way and another group another way. And Paul is angry. He has righteous indignation that he is directing towards these Corinthian believers. And he says, what? Exclamation mark. Or no. No. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? If, if this is what you want to do, if you just want to have a party, you can have a party. Go ahead. Eat food, drink wine, have a party. But that's not why you're gathered here. He says you've got houses to do that. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Do you hate the church so much that you would come in and treat other people like that? Do you have such a low regard for the body of Christ that you would come strutting in and do something like this? What shall I say to you? What what can I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Verse 23 through 26 shows them what they should have been doing. After he unleashes on them, after he expresses and vents his rage against what they are doing, he says, listen, for I received from the Lord what is also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He reminds them of what the gospel writers had taught them about what had happened that day. In fact, it wasn't just the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was present. Matthew was present. Mark was not. Luke was not. And neither was Paul. But Paul also received a special revelation of what went on that evening. It's been revealed to me by the Lord about what happened there. And so he says, as often as important phrase, as often as. He doesn't tell them how often to do it. You know, some people say we shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper every week because it becomes too common, too frequent. It loses its significance. I think there's some truth to that possibly, but I guess my only question would be logically, we go to church every week. I mean, has preaching and singing then become too frequent? I mean, there's a lot of things we do every week. There's a lot of things we do every day. And uh, maybe, maybe there's a point to be made for celebrating the Lord's Supper every time we gather as a church. I mean, it's the very centerpiece of what holds us together. If there is anything that we have fellowship in, it's this. If there's anything that binds us together, it's this. If there's anything that crosses any racial or ethnic or financial line, socioeconomic class, age, gender, it's this. But he says, as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And, and, and you do it in remembrance. It's a specific remembrance. It's very much like the remembrance of God in Exodus 12 when he says that he put the rainbow in the sky so that every time it is seen, he remembers that he will not judge the world again with a flood. God never forgets. But when the rainbow is present, he reminds himself that he will never judge the world by water again. It is an active remembering And so when we are called to do this in remembrance of him, it's an active remembering. And we do this every time we come together because we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 
This is a proclamation of his death, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. It is a declaration, a proclamation to all of you that there is forgiveness, that there is reconciliation in Christ, that if you are separated from him because of your sin and your lack of belief, that he invites you to believe it. He says, put down all of your sin, put down your damnable good deeds, put down any religion that you think is going to earn you favor with him, put down any thought or argument that you have built up that would suggest that you can do anything to justify yourself and instead come to him with absolute abandonment of everything else and put your trust in him. That's the invitation. That's, that's what's invited when we celebrate communion. And it says that we do that until he comes. Why? Because it is a reminder that he's coming. It's a reminder that he's returning. It's a reminder that, yes, one day we're going to drink wine with him in the kingdom. But it's also a reminder that he's coming. And when he comes, the door is shut. And opportunity ceases. And those who think that they can just smuggle themselves into the banquet will be found and will be expelled. That there will be a hell to pay when he returns. And so he says, celebrate this. Be reminded of the day when we're going to celebrate it together, but also use it as a time to proclaim my coming to sow into the hearts of those who are recalcitrant, those who are disobedient, those who are stubborn, those who refuse to obey, those who dig in their heels in doubt and say the time will come when the invitation no longer is extended and the doors are shut and you are left out. It's a plea. So with that in mind, he returns to his chastisement of these believers And I might add, he calls them believers in this book consistently. I know from verse 32 that they will not be condemned along with the world. These are Christians. All of the appalling behavior demonstrated in the church at Corinth was demonstrated by and large by believers. And that might be hard to understand given the significance and the severity of his judgment, but it is true. But he says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty discerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? The context makes the answer very clear. The only way for you to eat or drink in an unworthy manner is for you to be guilty of the crimes listed at the beginning of the section where you would arrive, consume all the food, drink all the wine, and ignore your brothers and sisters. That is what it means to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. The context makes it clear. We are not allowed to import virtuous ideas into texts where they don't belong for the sole purpose of trying to compel other believers to obey. While I respect the fact that there are many people who believe that because of the significance of what we're celebrating, that it ought to be taken with the utmost respect and reverence, and while I agree with that, and while I would promote that and teach that, it would be, in my opinion, with all respect, pastoral malpractice, to go back to this particular text to justify that admonition. I don't see that here. I see here a very clear context that the ones who are in mind that are eating in an unworthy manner are the ones who are being guilty of the very thing mentioned earlier. And I believe that that case is only made stronger as we continue. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself to see that you are not doing the very thing listed out for you earlier and instead You will do what he is going to tell you what to do in a moment, which is to have your parties at home and have your love feasts at church. And do whatever you want with your friends at home, but at church you wait for everyone to get there or else it's not communion. 
Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The word body is, in my opinion, not a reference to the human body, but to the body of Christ. In the context, the best translation would be to see that as the body of Christ, the church. The one who eats and drinks without considering the church, without discerning the church, without looking around and and, and asking himself or herself, what about the church? If you just rush ahead without concerning or thinking about the church, then you drink judgment on yourself. You eat judgment upon yourself. God will punish you for doing that. In fact, he says here, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That is a serious penalty. They are weak, they are ill, and some have died. If you go into that agape feast and you just, in a gluttonous frenzy, gobble up everything in front of you and drink all the wine, then you are guilty of a serious breach of fellowship, so much so that because God loves His church and the purity of His church and the significance of the celebration, He, in His fatherly discipline, chastises his own by making them weak, ill, and in some cases, dead. But, this is a strong contrast, verse 31 and verse 32. Paul is making an argument, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we take it upon ourselves to govern our behavior, we wouldn't have to have somebody else govern our behavior. If we govern ourselves as a body, the Lord doesn't have to discipline us. If we do what he's asked us to do, he won't correct us. But, verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. It's absolutely clear from the text and the context that the one who is doing the disciplining is God The recipient of the disciplining is his child. The reason for the disciplining is their neglect of the body and the way that they discipline or they are disciplined is with weakness, illness, and even death. And what they are guilty of is completely disregarding the brothers and sisters around them. He says then, verse 32, continuing it, When we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that, it's a purpose clause, hint a clause in the original, the whole reason for Paul's argument. He's summing it all up. There's a point that he's trying to make. So mark that. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Do you see that? Unbelievers are condemned along with the world. Unbelievers are condemned. That's what they do. If you're an unbeliever, you are facing condemnation. You are marked out for judgment and condemnation. So, if he says here that those who are disciplined are not condemned, it means that they are disciplined by God as Christians so that they are not condemned as unbelievers. This is fatherly discipline poured out upon people in the church because he loves the church. So then, what am I examining myself for? What am I doing to eat and drink in a worthy manner? Paul reveals it very clearly in verse 33 and 34. So then, here's the antidote. Here is what it takes to make sure that you are eating in a worthy manner. Here's what you need to examine yourself for. Here is how you make sure that you are not going to fall under his discipline. So then, my brothers and sisters, family, church, when you come together, there's our word again, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. 
so that, another purpose, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What good is it to celebrate communion if all it is is a great big festival leading to discipline? (laughs) What good is it having the Lord's table if all it means is that those who are present or many who are present are either disciplined by God or humiliated by their brothers and sisters in the church? It's not a good thing. That's why he says at the very beginning, you don't come together for the better, but for the worse. Make it for the better. Make this a gathering for the better. And the other things I will give directions about when I come. All that other stuff can wait. What was in the rest of chapter 11, the instructions in 12 to 14, a lot of those things he's going to explain, but this one he really wanted to drill down and make sure that we understood. Now, Let me raise and answer a couple of objections. There's an objection that's made sometimes, though infrequently, I think, given the weakness of the argument, but I'll address it anyway, that Matthew 5 would tell us that another way that we should consider ourselves unworthy of the Lord's table is if somehow there's a conflict between us and another person. Please turn to Matthew chapter 5. I just want to address this because it comes from The Sermon on the Mount, a teaching that Jesus gave, recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. The context here is anger. Jesus says, for you have heard it said that to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, here's the context, so in light of the terrible sin of anger, in light of how easy it is to provoke one another to anger, In light of the fact that you don't want to be disciplined by God for anger, if you are offering your gift, and the word gift there means money, this is a money gift. There was money and there was animals. Sometimes you gave blood and meat and sometimes you gave money. Almost every time this word is used, it's used of the monetary gift. If you are offering your monetary gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, there's a guilt here has something against you, not just if your brother is offended by you. Beloved, first of all, even if it were possible that you had to exclude yourself from the table because someone else had something against you or was offended by you, even if that were possible, then how many of us would ever be able to take communion? There wouldn't, I guarantee you, there wouldn't be a single pastor who could take communion. I mean, it's impossible. This is not talking about somebody having some grudge against you or being offended by something that you said or did. This is a legitimate crime that's been committed against them. They have something against you. Why do I say that? Because notice how urgent it is. Leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your your brother and then come and offer your gift. Pay what you owe first. If it's money, pay what you owe. If it's something else, return it. Do whatever you need to do to be reconciled, to be made right with your brother. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. That implies guilt. They don't put innocent people in prison. So this person in view here, hypothetically, is a person who's giving their gift to God. Maybe they're doing what some of the Jews did and they said, sorry, we can't give any money to our parents because everything is Corbin. Remember that illustration Jesus gave? It's all been dedicated to the temple, all given to God. I can't help my parents. Sorry. Jesus says that's wickedness. Forget what you've pledged here. Literally, give back to your brother that you owe before you give to the church. Pay your debts before you bring something that you think is an act of worship because it's not going to worship the Lord if you give him something that you owe somebody else. Make it right. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 26, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, the context is money. The context is guilt. 
and the context suggests that somebody is going to be guilty of anger towards you, but you are going to be guilty of provoking it because of your disobedience. So, make it right. It does not mean that you are not allowed to come to the Lord's table, even if it meant that you could not sacrifice. It wouldn't be relevant anyway, because Jesus is talking about the altar and the temple and the old covenant system and the sacrifices and the gifts, and that's got nothing to do with communion. I could have just said the context is different, therefore it's irrelevant, but then you wouldn't think that I had done any homework to prove my point. So, having proved my point, I will now give my initial answer, which is that's a silly thing to say because it's a pointless cross-reference. It's got nothing to do with communion, so don't bother even troubling your mind with thinking about it in the future. I have one last one that might be a little closer to home for some of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I've heard this said too. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves. This is used often to elicit introspection on the part of people who gather on the Lord's Day. It's used often to convince people that they ought to be in mortal fear of taking communion with quote-unquote unconfessed sin. May I just add, brothers and sisters, you will always have unconfessed sin. There is not a moment when you do not have unconfessed sin. In fact, even if you were to somehow confess all your sins or pray like a blanket confession, like, Lord, forgive me for all of my sins, you will have sinned between when you got up from the pew and when you took communion and sat back down again. You will always have unconfessed sin. So please, don't delude yourselves into thinking that you're going to make yourself right to come to the table. As I've said a thousand times, that's hyperbolic. As I've said many times from here, if you are somebody who has sinned and you know you are a great sinner, remind yourself that we preach a great Savior and great mercy, and you run to this table and receive from Him the symbol of that forgiveness. However, examine yourselves, he says, to see that you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Once again, I would tell you this has nothing to do with the context of communion. It has to do with the context of doubting Paul's apostolic authority. It has to do with the context of these arrogant Corinthians holding Paul at arm's length and doubting whether or not what he said was really from God. He says, you're testing me. You're examining me. Maybe y'all ought to examine yourself to see if you're even Christians. That's what he's saying to them. That's, that's the depth of their arrogance. Paul is going after him here. He says, you test yourself. See if you're in the faith. But here's the point. Here's the test. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What's the test? Even if the test were, how well am I doing? The answer is not, well, I'm doing well this week. I guess I deserve to come to the Lord's table. The answer should be, as long as I see Christ in me, the author and finisher of my faith, that is the only invitation I need to the table. Brothers and sisters, this table is open to anybody who has put their faith in Christ. Whether or not you believe you're worthy to be there or not. Your worthiness cannot come from anything that you have done, and your unworthiness cannot overrule His worthiness. You are here because of His worthiness, not your worthiness. And so I invite you as we turn now to this celebration to truly embrace it as such a celebration, celebrating the merits of Christ the imputed righteousness of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And do not turn your eyes inward to find anything that you could offer in return except your humble gratitude and obedience and reverence. Nothing that I've said today should diminish the reverence attached to the glory of this ordinance. Far be it from us to then casually or carelessly take from this table. In fact, I would say to you by way of warning, especially to you parents, because the children are going to be making their way in now, especially to you parents, do not create a generation of hypocrites. 
don't allow them to come down with you if they have not genuinely been born again. Be godly parents and do the work of training them so that you don't deceive them into thinking this is for them because it's just what everyone else in the church is doing and it would be embarrassing if I had to stay here while you went up on your own. Parents, don't raise up a generation of hypocrites. It's hard enough to explain the meaning of this table. Don't reinforce something that isn't true. Is this table open to all? Yes, but to all who are believers, not just to all who feel like coming because that's what everyone else is doing. Now, if you are not a Christian, but for the first time you are realizing that this gospel, this invitation to put my faith in Christ, this freedom to lay down the burden of self-righteousness, this freedom to embrace the truth that God exists and that He is holy and that I am separated from Him, but that He has offered me in Christ free and abundant forgiveness. If that's coming clear to you for the first time, if the Lord's given you a heart to believe that, then put your faith in Him today. And I can't think of a more wonderful first act of obedience than to come forward and to receive this table. But do it in celebration of your redemption today. With that, I'm going to go to prayer and I'm going to invite Dave to come up and to lead us in some songs that we're going to sing and also to invite the children back in to join us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these scriptures about the Lord's Supper and communion. Lord, the reality that we are able to gather here to receive this today from you is just so sweet. Make it a, a joyful and precious time for us today. Make it instructive. Uh, make it life-giving and regenerating. But also clear our minds that we don't think that this is for the forgiveness of our sin, that this will somehow infuse grace, that this will somehow improve our standing with you. No. No, this is something that reveals our perfect standing with you. But not because of anything we've done, but because all that you have done, and as a result, there's nothing that we have done that could keep us from this table because of all that you have done. May that be the beautiful truth that just compels us forward. In your name we pray. Amen.